While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everyone. A few people were here. No, I'm joking. So, shall we pray to start with? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that you are raised, that we live as Easter people. Uh, and I pray uh, that through the words that I say, something will stick with every person, and anything that isn't from you will just be washed off. In your name, amen. Amen. So I'm Nate, as Louise said, and uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm the student ambassador here at church. Although, this is actually my last Sunday here. I know. Well, that's horrible. And you gave a little celebration. So, apparently I've not been that good. But anyway, so I, yeah, I'm finishing working today uh, as uh, the student ambassador. I'm starting a job as a learning support assistant uh, in a special needs school in Southampton, which is really exciting. But it's also really sad to be leaving this job. But fortunately, I'm not leaving the church. I'm still here, just leaving my paid role. So... I'll still be here. I'll still be around. Uh, but anyway, so tonight I get the privilege uh, of finishing off Easter. At least that's what the Instagram post called it when I read it yesterday. It said finishing off Easter, uh, which is really exciting, but also a little daunting, to be honest. It's your first time preaching on a Sunday. Finishing off Easter is quite a big one. But a little story before we jump into that passage that Beth read so well. So I knew I was preaching in this talk uh, early February. Um, and for anyone who hasn't preached here before, there's a church week rotor. And on that rotor, you find the date that you've been given to preach. And you, you go down, you find it, and it has a title that Simon has put there that will give you just a little snippet of what goes on in the talk. And then you have the Bible passage that you can read at your own leisure to find out what you're talking on. So anyway, as the good Christian boy that I am, I went and I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to do it straight away. I'm going to go and find what I'm preaching on because that will be helpful. I'll get it going in the mind. Uh, so I went down, found mine, and it said, just the title, I've got a cunning plan. And I thought, great, Simon's got a cunning plan. This is fine. I don't need to worry about what, you know, Simon's got a cunning plan. He's a man with many plans. So I thought, well, it's odd he's put this one out there, but I'm glad that he's got one. So we were just, you know, I was just going about my life, working with the students, and it kind of was getting later and later, and I was checking church suite, my emails, texts, teams, not a single thing had come into my inbox. So I thought, well, okay, I'm, you know, getting a bit nervous now, I don't know what I'm doing. So it got to the point, it was kind of late March maybe, and I was in the, in the office, I shared with Jack and Louise, and I was like, guys, do you have any idea what this cunning plan is? Because I genuinely have no idea, and I'm getting a bit nervous. They, obviously, didn't have any idea either. So we were all in the office like, great, I need to go and ask Simon what's going on. So I went and I found him and I said, Simon, I hear you've got a cunning plan. I've read this. Could you just share it with me so I know what's happening? 
To which point he goes, what are you talking about? Maybe not as aggressively as that sounded. <laughs> but anyway, he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, on Church Street, it says, you've got a cunning plan. And he thought, no, 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 no. I've not got a cunning plan. The passage has a cunning plan. Is there no passage? And I said, no, no, there's no passage, Simon. We had this back and forth until finally I went back to Church Street. Lo and behold, a passage had appeared. So... <laughs> The moral of this story is, if someone has a cunning plan, check it with them first. (laughs) It saves a lot of panic. But anyway, let's discuss this cunning plan. So as I was reading this passage, which Beth read so beautifully for us earlier, I saw two different reactions to the body being removed from the tomb. So the first is the reaction of the soldiers. So how did they react? Well, they realized that the body was gone. The tomb, they were stationed to guard and had cemented in place with a big boulder, uh, had, had been opened. There was no longer a body inside that tomb. The stone that was rolled in the way had the Roman seal of approval that meant that they were going to guard it. So it was, you know, it should have been immovable. But the body was gone. And so they went to the city to tell the chief priest that this had happened. To me, this is a beautiful, earthly reaction to something supernatural. You know, I picture the guards looking at each other like, oh dear, what are we going to do? Honestly, we were here, we were stationed, you know, it's our job, we've just, something's happened, I don't know what's going on. To which point, they decide to go and tell the chief priests, which, they're not actually people who they should have told anyway. You know, they weren't employed by the chief priests. It was, they were employed by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, which to me is a little bit like going to mum if dad says no. I actually know that my parents are watching, the camera's down there, uh, supposedly with a curry, they told me. But it's a little bit like going to mum when dad says no, or basically, you just know that you're not going to tell the person who's going to be angry with you. So that's what they did. Which leads me on to this second reaction, the reaction of the chief priests. They are the ones with the cunning plan, not Simon, the chief priests. And so the ones who, upon hearing the news that Jesus' body is no longer where it was left, have to come up with a way to explain away this miraculous sign and explain away they do. You know, I can just picture the look of panic on the faces of the Jewish soldiers. Sorry, not soldiers, the Jewish leaders. Amidst the thoughts of utter amazement and bewilderment at the news that they've just heard. And then the chief priest gathering the elders together, which I imagine looks a little like the Jedi Council gathering together, and then devising this plan to explain away this miracle. So the cunning plan they devise is that they tell the Roman soldiers to spread the rumor that the disciples came by night whilst the soldiers were asleep and stole the body, and they will reward them handsomely. I mean, it's kind of a simple plan, if I'm being honest. And it took all these undoubtedly intelligent men to get together to come and say, you guys who are employed not to fall asleep, you fell asleep. And the boulder that was immovable was rolled by a bunch of men who were crying because their leader had gone, had been killed. But that was their plan, so they went with it. Uh, One kind of minor point that I just want to say here, uh, but I think it's important to dwell on, is how quickly the soldiers do what they're told when money is involved. The author tells us, so the soldiers took the money and did as they were told. 
I think this is a challenge for all of us. I certainly know it's a challenge in my own life, is to not chase money. The Bible is incredibly clear on its view of money and how the love of it leads us to a deep and dark place. Just look at Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think this short verse is one of the clearest, most tangible examples the Bible gives us to illustrate what happens if you do chase the money. You know, the soldiers, having seen a miracle unexplained by human uh, interpretation and reasoning, take the money and deny the miracle. So please, friends, brothers and sisters, when money is at stake, be so careful. Be so careful, especially if chasing it comes at the expense of the love and truth of God. And a second minor point that I think is important to mention is that phrase found in verse 13. If this report gets to the governors, we will satisfy him. This isn't an unnecessary line added to bulk out Matthew's gospel. It's pertinent because if a Roman soldier fell asleep whilst on guard, it was a crime punishable by death. And therefore, for the chief priest's plan to work, it necessitated the soldiers admitting that they'd committed this crime. Therefore, the chief priest had to be willing to defend the soldiers of their usual punishment for this sort of crime. This is staggering to me, because it shows how entwined the Jewish religion was with the state, that the chief priests would be able to satisfy the Roman governors, who were a group of individuals who, by all accounts, were pretty ruthless. And it also demonstrates how quickly a lie can escalate. You know, it starts off seemingly simple. Just spread the rumor that the disciples stole the body. But quickly it escalates to perjuring yourself in front of an empire that had weaponized capital punishment in a way not often repeated in history. And I think that's really important, is that we've got to be people of the truth and the love of God. Because it so quickly can become something else and it becomes so dangerous. But anyway, back to the chief priest's reaction. This religious reaction, attempting to explain away the saving grace of God by giving a human explanation to the miraculous workings of God. But why? Why these reactions? Why does it matter? Why would the chief priests tell the soldiers to give this scarcely believable rendition. Well, I believe it's because it was the most important moment in human history. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then his life doesn't really matter. He was just a good guy that performed miracles and gave you and I some good morals to live by. Or as Paul more eloquently puts it, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if he did rise again, then it's of eternal importance. You see, you can't have a small reaction to the tomb being emptied. It has to be an extreme one because its importance necessitates an extreme reaction. Either it's the most important moment in human history because Jesus rose again, or it's the most important moment in human history because Jesus didn't rise again. My friends, there is no middle ground here. 
all of you guys who like to pick a seven in a score of 10 or like to sit on fences, in this moment, with this fact and story laid out for you, there is no middle ground. Instead, there is wonderful permission to believe and live in the resurrecting power of God. The resurrecting power of God is quite simply the most incredible and most important act of grace of all time. Jesus, acting as the lamb, slaughtered for our transgressions, was important, but without the resurrection, we couldn't be called conquerors, nor would Satan's power have finally been defeated. I don't want to dismiss hardship because people suffer daily, but the beauty of the resurrection is that God won. We are on the victorious team. This is a little hard for me to understand because I'm a Man United fan, and right now, they are terrible. (laughs) They really are terrible. (laughs) Um, But in this act of resurrection, Jesus defeated the last power Satan held on earth. He was victorious. Of course, this doesn't mean we won't suffer, but that's not the point of the resurrection or of Jesus' victory. The point of the resurrection was, as Paul says, that there is now nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there Paul is verbalizing that we will have both good and bad times, but the joy that we have stems from the intimate love of God. And it's not determined by our tangible experiences. No, it's because Jesus rose again. Because Jesus rose again, we no longer have to be held captive in bondage to sin. Jesus' resurrection won the battle over sin. We no longer have to stand distant from God, have a permanent intermediary between us and the King of Kings. Because in that moment when Jesus rose again, he rescued our relationship and, he, and that meant that God could now dwell in our very souls. We no longer have to fear the power of death, the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Because instead, the resurrection disarmed the tyrant and allows us to live without fear in the knowledge that there is an eternal being who holds my soul. Instead of judgment and condemnation, I've been justified and sanctified, and so have all of you. And instead of fear and anger, we get to love, nay, we have to love. Because Jesus paid the price that demonstrates our worth and our value. And now that, my friends, is a wonderful victory. That's why the tomb being emptied is the most important moment in human history. We are Easter people, so let's live like we are. Amen.